Hi, friends. To those of you watching online, this is what they heard. <laughs> Apparently, Troy has a short in his microphone cable that we'll need to fix. And so, and that happens. Thanks for coming to church today. Thanks for your grace with a little technical difficulty. Today we continue a series we're calling The Cycle of Grace. It was introduced to me by South African Pastor Trevor Hudson last fall. And we've spent the last several weeks working our way through each part of the cycle. You see, the cycle of grace is a mental model developed by British psychologist Frank Lake. When Lake, along with Swiss theologian Emil Brunner, observed burnout in missionaries. They watched well-meaning ministers set out for the mission field with passion and anticipation, only to find many returning home bitter and broken. Their hearts grew hard. They became jaded and cynical. The scholars, deeply bothered by this outcome, wondered how could people do the work of Jesus without experiencing the peace of Jesus? To answer that question, they immersed themselves in the Gospels. They studied what the Bible said about the teaching of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And as they did so, a pattern emerged, which they called the cycle of grace. Now, we considered the cycle in its entirety in the first week of our series. Here, I'll offer a brief overview. The cycle begins with acceptance. Lakenbrunner observed that Jesus understood who he was and where he stood in relationship to God the Father before he even began his ministry. At his baptism, Jesus embraced his identity when God the Father proclaimed, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. As Lake and Bruner pondered God's proclamation, they discerned that followers of Jesus need a strong sense of their identity in God before they do anything for God. My friends, if you know deep down that God loves you before you've done anything for him, then you're doing will never be about earning. And my friends, you don't need to earn God's love. You just need to turn toward it. And grace flows into the life of a person who embraces their acceptance in God. The second phase of the cycle of grace is called sustenance. Lake and Brunner considered all the soul-filling activities in which Jesus engaged throughout the Gospels. And they observed Jesus built his life on a number of practices that sustained him, like prayer, solitude, reflecting on the Bible, worship. Thus, Lake and Brunner discerned our need for spiritual practices. If we want to live in the cycle of grace, then we've got to do things that bring us closer to God so that God can work in us through those practices to shape us and strengthen us and fill us up. And the third phase, significance, our topic for today's message, Lake and Brunner observed how Jesus embraced his purpose. He was well aware of his significance in the world. We can see it in what we sometimes call the I am statements of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. But the scholars then observed the Bible offers similar identity statements for you and for me. And they concluded that if we're going to thrive in this life, we've got to embrace our God-given purpose. We're born to be God-bearers to the world. We're called to be active participants in God's mission of love and joy and peace. 
Well, finally, we come to fruitfulness, the last phase of the cycle of grace, which involves the outcomes and results of our work in the world. Well, after considering the life of Jesus in the Gospels and contrasting it with the lives of the missionaries, Lake and Bruner concluded that people in ministry were not living in the cycle of grace. They were working through the cycle backwards, counterclockwise against the flow of grace. They worked tirelessly to achieve fruitful outcomes so they would feel significant. And they hoped that feeling of significance would sustain them and fill them up so others would accept them. Like in Bruner called this the cycle of works. Now friends, in our attempt to make sure we're going the right way around the cycle of grace, we, we, we looked at different parts each week. And today, I hope to convince you of your significance. My friend, you've been picked for a purpose. Whether you feel good enough or smart enough or talented enough or not, you've been picked for a purpose. Your life's meant to matter. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Now, before I say more, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for speaking through the Bible. And today we invite you to speak again. May you use these words from the past to communicate profoundly in the present. May the truth of the text inform our thoughts, our feelings, our deeds, and our dreams. And we pray this in the name of King Jesus and for the sake of his kingdom. Amen. Okay, I love soul music. And one of the great bands of the genre is Earth, Wind, and Fire. Are you familiar with them? They're known for their hits, Let's Groove and September. But one of their tunes made it to number one. It's called Shining Star. Here it is. You remember it? Shining Star was composed by Maurice White, Larry Dunn, and Philip Bailey. It topped the Billboard Hot 100 in 1975. Listen to that guitar. Alex Henderson calls it sweaty funk. Now, since its release in 1975, Shining Stars often resurfaced in pop culture. It's been re-recorded by some legendary acts, including the hip-hop collective Wu-Tang Clan, as well as Philadelphia's own The Roots. And who among us could forget the stirring rendition by Hannah Montana? Some of you were introduced to Shining Star by a woman named Elaine. She's got moves, friends. Any of you dance like that? Now, my, my favorite interpretation of this song comes from one of my favorite bands from the 80s. And when I tell you who they are, some of you will judge me. But others will applaud me. Because my favorite arrangement of Shining Star comes from a little known band called Striper. Do I have any Striper fans in the house? 
Literally none of you. Come on. Okay, friends, these beautiful men were the first Christian metal band to achieve mainstream achieve acceptance. Their hits, Free and Honestly, were the most requested songs on the popular TV show Dial MTV. The band drew much controversy. They were praised by televangelist Jim Baker. They were panned by televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. In the end, neither assessment proved to hold up to moral scrutiny. Christians debated whether disciples of Jesus should look like that. Well, as a kid, I didn't know the answer to that question. I just knew that I needed to rock. By the way, I don't know what they're looking at in this photo. But I think it's safe to say they're looking to Jesus. Now, if you're wondering, and I know you're wondering, today, Striper is still rocking the world for the light of the world. True story. I dated a girl that was pretty connected. So I got to hang out with the band on a couple occasions in the early 90s. And I, it was on the Against the Law tour, I first heard them play Shining Star Live. Would you like to hear it? Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you, Striper. Shining star for you to see. Wait on it. Come on! Listen to the bass line. Now, for the record, that's Randy Jackson on bass from American Idol. Come on, people, receive this. Come on. Now, friends, here's why I chose to funk it up and rock it out with you today. The lyrics of this tune illustrate our topic. As the story goes, Maurice White of Earth, Wind, and Fire was strolling at night outside the famed recording studio Caribou Ranch in the Colorado Mountains. When he looked up into the night sky, he began to piece together the lyrics. You're a shining star, no matter who you are, shining bright to see what you could truly be. Now, it's a nice sentiment, isn't it? Inspirational. Like a public service announcement. It's a pleasant image, but one that's easily discarded and dismissed, especially if you don't feel very shiny. But, but what if it could be true for you? What if you could stand out against a black backdrop? Well, we're not talking about standing out because of your, because you're talented or pretty, or popular, or productive the way a lot of the world tries to stand out. No, I'm talking about standing out because of the way you live and the way you love. In one of his letters, Paul challenges the church at Philippi to get over themselves and jettison their negative attitudes and pity parties for a better way to be in the world. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a wicked and crooked generation, then, he says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky 
as you hold firmly to the word of life. Paul asks us to imagine a world where the people of God don't grumble and gripe and squabble, but instead radiate a completely different attitude. If we do, he says, we'll shine like stars in the night skies. We hold on to the word of life. My friend, does your life reflect that word of life? Do you shine a radiant, life-giving attitude to the world around you? God always intended this to be the vocation of his people as we join him in his work in the world. Now, today's message is primarily directed to people who consider themselves followers of Jesus. And that may not be you. If you've come as a guest or an observer, you're watching online, that may not be you, but we're thrilled you're here. We hope you can find capital to be a safe place for you no matter where you are in the spiritual journey. Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this message will give you a glimpse of what you're getting into if you choose to follow him and find your significance in him and what he's calling you to do. The Apostle Peter reminds God's people of their responsibility. We looked at it in detail last spring. Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As apprentices of Jesus, Peter says that we are chosen. And it's a privilege to be picked. But the picking has a purpose. God has a habit of picking people to participate in his work. Even though it doesn't always work out. He picked Adam and Eve. That didn't go so well. Then he picked Noah. That didn't turn out so great either. Later he picked a man named Abraham, but he picked him with a purpose. In Genesis 12 verse 2, God told him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This, friends, is one of the great themes of the Bible, and we dare not forget it. We're picked for a purpose. We're blessed to be a blessing. It's a privilege and a responsibility. When you wake up tomorrow morning, go to the mirror, look yourself in the eye, and say, I'm picked for a purpose. I'm blessed to be a blessing. Then ask yourself, who am I blessing? What people are being blessed as I walk the earth? Peter says, we're a chosen people. Then he adds, we're a royal priesthood. Note the overlap of religion and royalty. Consider the privilege of suddenly becoming part of a royal family. Imagine being transformed from commoner to queen overnight. It's the stuff of fairy tales. The opportunity would have been unfathomable to the ancient reader. But that's the image Peter uses. It's a status change that's just that drastic. He says, you are a child of King Jesus. Then the metaphor grows thicker in the second half of the image. He says, we're a royal priesthood. And becoming a priest entitles you to one of the greatest privileges of all, direct access to God. You don't have to go through a mediator. You don't have to ask anybody to pray your prayers for you. My prayers are no more powerful than yours. We're all priests and priestesses. But with that privilege comes great responsibility. Peter says, we're the priests of Jesus on the earth. He hands us a responsibility of bringing up there, down here, by pointing people to God's forgiveness. 
You see, we're blessed to be a blessing. Then Peter declares we're a holy nation. And here I should probably state the obvious. We're not that holy. We we have more than our fair share of backbiting, betrayal, and sexual promiscuity. And you probably don't have to look very far to see the problem. You just got to look in the mirror. But, But here... In this passage, holy doesn't mean perfect, friends. It means set apart. Set apart, that is, for a special purpose. A few years ago, some friends bought me some gorgeous steak knives. They're nice, and they're sharp. But they'll only remain sharp if I keep them sharp. They won't remain sharp if I use them to tighten screws around the house. Those knives are set apart for a purpose, an important purpose, the cutting of fine meats. And I know you agree there are a few more important purposes on the planet than the cutting of fine meats. See, I think the key to understanding holiness is we've got to understand devotion. To be set apart for something is to be devoted to it. Holiness is not primarily about obeying a list of thou shall nots. In fact, the most common way to misunderstand holiness is to make it about a bunch of don'ts. Holiness is less about don'ts and more about do's. But if you still feel unworthy, please understand, God doesn't wait to set you apart as holy until after you make yourself holy. James Bryan Smith clarifies, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Here's a prayer. You can start praying over yourself. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Sanctify sounds like such a stuffy word, but but that's a consequence of our English language. We don't have a single English word that means what this means without sounding old-fashioned. Paul simply means, may God make you holy. Now friends, don't confuse holiness with self-righteousness. Often when we think of holy people, we, we think of holier-than-thou people, pe- people who carry themselves with haughtily with an air of piety. Often people like that are less interested in, in being holy and more interested in looking holy. Self-righteous Christians are, are some of the hardest people to be around. They, they make everybody miserable. But, but not because they suck all the fun out of the room. It's because they flood the atmosphere with shame. They spread it everywhere like the stench of a skunk reminding people around them that they aren't quite good enough. Friends, those aren't holy people. Those are holier than thou people. And those are the people that got into the most conflict with Jesus. The religious leaders who wore their faith on their sleeves but not in their hearts. Interestingly, Jesus modeled a holiness that didn't repel people. It drew them in. Jesus' holiness was contagious. You see, holiness, it's about your mind, it's about your mouth, it's about your relationship. Holiness shows up in the way you talk about people when they're not in the room. Holiness is about what happens when people bump into you and love sloshes out of you. Holiness offers our world the healing it desperately needs. And that's why I'm going to challenge you today with the words of the great 18th century church leader, John Wesley, who said, be the best person God can make you. I love that saying. I've shared it with you before. It crams a lot of theology into a single sentence. 
You have a part to play in the process and so does God. In fact, God's part's bigger than yours, but yours is still essential. Peter says you're chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Then he says you're God's special possession. This and several of the other words in Peter's letter are lifted directly from Exodus 19. Now, Peter is translating a Hebrew word into Greek, and then as we drag it over into English, its meaning gets a little watered down along the way. Just think of it like this. God says, you are my treasure. Or or if you want a verb and noun, he says, I treasure you. Okay, here's what that says about your significance. My friend, as you walk the earth, as you live your life, even when you get dumped or dumped on, God treasures you. Take that knowledge with you when you walk into the office on Monday. Bring that fact with you when you scroll through everyone's Instagram posts tonight. But let's review what we've read. You are a chosen people, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, you're picked for a purpose. You're blessed to be a blessing. God set us apart, not simply to show we're different. He sets us apart to tell the world about him. We're his name bearers. He he wants us to show the world who he really is. Now, friends, that leads me to an observation. And it's a little bit scary. God trusts you and me with his reputation. How are we doing with that? Do the people around you misunderstand who he is because of how you live? I have a relatively rare name, Troy. There aren't very many of us. You probably don't know a lot of Troy's. I almost never find myself in a room with another Troy. Is there by chance another Troy out here today? Look around. No, there isn't. There aren't many Troys walking the earth. Just me and that kid from high school musical. That's it, okay? But but my last name is even more unique. Champ. Hear me. I've never been in a room with another champ that I wasn't related to. But that's not true for my brother. Let me explain. This is a true story. When my brother, his name is Tom, and his wife, Robin, got married, they moved into an apartment complex that had another champ family. And the husband of that champ family just happened to be named Tom. And that Tom Champ just happened to be married to a woman named Robin. He said it was always a little weird when they bumped into each other in the mailroom. Can you imagine the mix-ups and the misdelivered mail? But imagine how scary it would be for someone to bear your name. Imagine if whatever they did in the world reflected on your character. Some of you know exactly what that's like. It's called parenting. And it's great. It's never embarrassing. Never, ever. You should try it. (laughs) 
My, my kids bear my name, literally. But my reputation goes along with them as well. If they're awesome at school, that's a reflection on me. If they're awful at school, that's a reflection on me. It can be frustrating for the parent because your kids have a free will. Well, what does that mean for our world? When the people that God entrusts with his reputation hand the world the number one reason why they shouldn't trust him. Mahatma Gandhi confessed, I like their Christ, I don't like their Christians. Friedrich Nietzsche remarked, I will believe in the Redeemer when the Christian looks a little more redeemed. My friends, the stakes are high. So let God heal you of your insecurity so you don't let your envy impede your love. Let God heal you of your temper so you'll stop snapping at people when you don't get your way. May I talk to our students for a second? You know, when you're in school, most people are concerned uh, about fitting in. Unless you've given up on fitting in. Well, I'm going to challenge you to do something different. Instead of blending in, find the faith to stand out. But, but not by saying something dumb or dressing like an idiot, okay? I, I'm just asking you to love people. I'm asking you to love the kid that other kids love to tease. I'm asking you to love the teacher that other kids love to hate. You don't have to be showy about it. Just be intentional about it. When you do, you are participating in God's holy work in the world. You are bringing up there, down here. You're being a blessing. And you're blessed for just that purpose. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What's he saying? I mean, what's the significance of salt? Interestingly, Jesus doesn't explain the metaphor, but he didn't need to. Not for his original audience. Oh, they knew the importance of salt. It was a valuable commodity in the first century, and it's an important part of our existence today. Think of all the ways we use salt. We use it to season food. Salt can be used as a purifying agent to kill bacteria. In the first century, it was used as a fertilizer when used in small quantities. Do you know how salt is, is most often used in America today? de-icing roads now in all cases when used properly salt dramatically changes everything it touches what message is he sending to his people when he says you are the salt of the earth in the days of Jesus salt was primarily used as a preservative think about it they didn't have refrigerators And ice surely wasn't available most months of the year. The only way to preserve food was salt because salt prevents decay. Now you know why beef jerky is so salty. What is Jesus saying about his people? He's saying that we have been given a charge by God to season the world, to prevent its decay, to make the world a better place. How are we doing with that? I hate to say it, but the number one people 
the number one reason people don't become Christians is Christians. Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg said, with or without religion, you'd have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. A cursory glance at a history book will tell you why Weinberg said that. Consider the Crusades, where people who bore the name of Jesus looted, raped, and pillaged in the name of Jesus. Consider the Inquisitions, anti-Semitism, or slavery. Slavery was not only condoned, but defended by many committed followers of Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that racism still exists in the church today. And truthfully, I don't need to read a book to understand Weinberg's point. I just got to look in the mirror. Are the people of God making this world a better place? Are we preventing its decay? See, when Jesus came on the scene in history, he encountered a people with an identity crisis. A people who had misunderstood or forgotten the role they were supposed to play in bearing God's name and shaping the destiny of the world. So he warns his people in verse 13, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, how can salt lose its saltiness? If you know your chemistry, you know that sodium chloride is a stable compound. The salt that we know cannot lose its saltiness. But in Jesus' day, the main source of salt was in the area around the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is similar to our Great Salt Lake, only saltier. An inexpensive way to obtain salt was to gather it from around the shore. Of course, the the substance gathered was tainted by impurities. So, when the salt was dissolved out, all that was left was a tasteless substance they would discard. You'd throw it out into the street. Jesus shifts the metaphor in verse 14. He says, you are the line of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Imagine journeying by foot through the region of Palestine at night. In the darkness of rural Israel, you can't help but see the glow of the city of Jerusalem from a distance. It like contrasts, it's like contrasts with the surrounding darkness. Does your life contrast with the world around you? Do you talk differently? Do you talk about people differently? You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Then he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In first century Israel, a typical lamp was a small shallow bowl of oil with a wick. The common household of the impoverished listener of Jesus had only one room in their home. Each night they would take the lamp, put it on a tall stand to light the whole room. That's from that old expression of this, uh, an old translation of this verse. We get the expression, don't hide your light under a bushel. Jesus says, it's absolutely absurd to, to enter a home, light a lamp with expensive oil, then immediately cover it so it gives off no light. Why would anyone do that? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Here in verse 16, we find the meaning behind the metaphor. What is that light? What is it that makes us shiny? Is it Christian t-shirts and Christian bumper stickers? 
Probably not. According to Jesus, we shine our light by the way we live. We shine our light by doing good. We shine our light by being holy. There's nothing wrong with t-shirts and bumper stickers. There's something really wrong with them if we're not living it. And according to Jesus, we're not doing good in order to draw attention to ourselves. You see, our good deeds draw attention to him. Our good deeds help the people around us to see the character of our wonderful God who is the source of our light and goodness. Question. Does your life cause people to thank God? Do your Instagram or TikTok posts prompt people to praise him? Your attitudes and actions advertise for God. What message are they selling? As I read Matthew 5, I'm reminded of an old axiom. Actions speak louder than words. I can share my faith with the eloquence of an angel. But if I'm not living my faith, my words are wasted. Because my life is louder than my voice. Just ask someone who isn't a Christian. As I said earlier, each week there are a lot of you in the room. And I expect that's no different today. You're on a journey of faith. You're asking good questions about God. But Christians keep getting in the way. My fellow followers of Jesus, may I remind you, your attitudes and actions advertise who God is. Are you representing him well? As they watch you weather a storm, as they watch how you treat your wife, as they hear how you talk about your husband, when people see the way you live, does it cause them to praise God? You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You're picked for a purpose and you're blessed to be a blessing. Friends, that means you're significant. You and I are called to be God bearers to the world. We're born to be active partners in his mission of love and joy and peace and joy and justice. Bringing heaven on earth, bringing up there down here. And I'm telling you, you have a unique way of being in the world. You do. You are a distinctive amalgamation of your gifts and talents and personality and experiences. Even your suffering. You know, your personal experience of suffering is something significant that God can use to heal others. I believe we we all have a deep need for significance. We have a God-given longing for meaning. We want our life to signify something. Oh, my friend, whatever you do, don't suppress your drive for significance. Now, you may need to suppress your ego, okay? But that's different. At the beginning of our Cycle of Grace series, I quoted Dallas Willard, who believed, unlike egotism, the drive to significance is a simple extension of the creative impulse of God that gave us being. It is not filtered through self-consciousness any more than is our lunge to catch a package falling from someone's hand. It is outwardly directed to the good to be done. We were built to count as water is made to run downhill. We are placed in a specific context to count in ways no one else does. That is our destiny. Now, as I come to a close, I want to talk to two specific groups of people. First, I want to speak to the person who's been reluctant to trust God. Maybe because of God's people. You haven't liked what you've seen. And my friend, I'm glad you're listening today. 
Because this message may simply open your mind to the possibility that his people might be misrepresenting him. Okay. And here's what I want to say to you specifically. Even if you feel far from God, he loves you more than you know. And he's picked you for a purpose too. Your life is meant to matter. And I'm telling you, he longs for you to experience his love. So you can then share his love to the people around you. We hope you continue your spiritual journey with us at Capital as you discern the path ahead. But maybe your path continues with just a next step. Maybe your journey to significance should start back at acceptance. Maybe you should pray this prayer. God, would you show me your love? I encourage you to pray that prayer. God, show me your love. Second, I want to speak to the person in the room who felt the nudge of the Spirit during this message because the fact of the matter is you've been giving God a bad name. Now, uh, you, you probably considered a couple ways you can fix this fast. First, you can hide your light under a bushel. You can never tell anyone that you're a follower of Jesus so you won't make him look bad. Problem solved. Okay, hear me. Your heart may be in the right place if you're thinking that, but that's the dumbest idea you've ever had. I mean, really. It's an overflowing bucket of dumb, okay? Now, the second option you may have considered is simply trying harder to be holy. And I don't love that option either. I I don't want to utterly dismiss the idea of effort, but I just want you to put your effort in the right place. We talk about spiritual formation a lot around here. If you want to be transformed, it's going to take God's help to get you transformed. So instead of trying harder, I recommend growing closer. Do things that bring you closer to God so he can shape you and mold you. In fact, let's go to him now. Pray with me. Lord, I pray you help my friends to see their significance in the world. Their eternal significance. They are blessed to be a blessing. I marvel at your thinking. Why you would entrust your reputation to people like us, I don't understand. But I trust you. And I count it a privilege to join you in your work of showing your love to this world. I pray you help us, Lord, to be aware of of the power of our presence on this planet. Shape us, Lord, into the people you've called us to be so that we can show the world who you really are. And for my friends who are with us on this spiritual journey, who have become disillusioned in their faith because of the lives of so many of of your followers, may you help them to see past us and find you and all of your goodness and greatness, your love and compassion and forgiveness. We pray this today for the sake of your name and reputation. Amen. Okay, may I give you some homework? Friends, as you know, whenever I sign homework at Capital, it's optional. You don't have to do all the things I'm going to suggest. 
you probably shouldn't. Because you don't need to. But maybe you need to do one or two or three of these things this week. Why? Is so you can connect to God throughout the week. So it's, it's something you can do to grow closer to him. So he can shape you, mold you, strengthen you, fill you. Okay? And here's the first thing. And I think it's important to start here. Uh, and, and I want to go back to the first lesson of the cycle of grace, acceptance. And I want you to know your value. You got to know your value before you search for your significance. Now, remember in the cycle of grace, acceptance precedes significance. And as I said, in the second week of our series, you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. That's true of you before you've done anything for God or for the world. You hear me? That's just who you are in him. He loves you fiercely. So your first assignment is know your value. Your second assignment is you be you. Huh? Friends, purpose is personal. Herbert Alfonso was convinced each of us has an unrepeatable uniqueness. There, there's only one you in time and space. Well, what does God want you to do? Who does God want you to be? And I can promise you, it's not a loser. It's not a failure. Oh, he may allow you to fail, but he's called you to significance and he's equipping you for it every step of the way. I assure you, your significance will be uniquely your own. You're not called to, to look just like everyone else. You're not called to talk just like everyone else. Trevor Hudson maintains, becoming a Christ follower doesn't mean greater conformity. Instead, it means greater eccentricity. Now hear this. Whether you dress like me or like our friends from Striper, God wants to use you. So, to that end, find your purpose. And I'm not necessarily talking about your career, though that might be involved. Simply, start talking to God about how he wants your life to leave a mark on this world. Here is a good place to start. A wonderful book. It's been around for a few decades. The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. I think the, the image on the screen says the book sold 35 million copies. No, it's 50 million. It's translated into 85 languages. And there's a reason. This wonderful, simple book has helped a lot of people find their purpose in God. Maybe this will be a good book for you to work through devotionally in the days ahead, okay? Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren. Here's another assignment. I want you to ask God to show you how to be a blessing today. And ask that every day. Don't focus on, on the future to the neglect of your present. I found God often reveals our purpose first in the little picture before the big picture. Okay? So ask him, God, how do you want me to be a blessing today? Even before I leave the building. Even before I log off. Maybe there's an email you need to send. A text you need to send. How does God want you to be a blessing today? And here's a good place to begin. A few times over the last several weeks, I've talked to you about that Bible study experience in God. And I'm actually surprised at how many of you are doing this with me in this season. It's, it's this, this wonderful old Bible study from the early 90s that underscores this truth. God loves you fiercely and he wants you to join him in his work in the world. Maybe a good step of faith for you is to pick up one of these workbooks and start working through it. 
And as I said to you before, the authors come from a different theological tradition than I do, so I'd probably say a few things differently than they would. That's okay. I'd use always and never a little less when it comes to describing the, the nature and the behavior of God. Great. But, but what this study does is open our eyes to see the work that God is already doing around us so we can join him in it. You know he's working all around you and he can't wait for you to participate in it. Do you get that? God can't wait for you to join him in his work. Now, two more quick assignments. First, pray that you'll become the best person God can make you. Right? But, second assignment, don't wait for God to fix you before you let him use you. See, you don't have to be perfect to find purpose. Stand with me. Okay, you know how in school the teacher's getting ready to dismiss all the kids and then there's one kid in the back that says, teacher, you forgot about this one assignment. And then, oh, and then the teacher adds the assignment and everybody wants to hurt the teacher, the kid that said that. Well, at one of our gatherings last night, as, oh, please stand with me and we're getting ready to leave. And this, this individual whom I love fiercely, she says, Troy, are you going to assign a striper song for us? And I had not thought of that, but I will today. We're going to start with Shining Star by Striper. It's on their Against the Law album. See what you think. Brace yourself, my friends. But if you really want, did anybody want extra credit? Let's go with the tune, Calling on You, from their album, To Hell with the Devil. That's the name of their album. It's the stuff I grew up on. This is what you turn out like when you listen to Striper, friends. Here's a verse for the week. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. The image on the screen is available for you to download along with the graphic I've been showing you throughout this, this message. If you'd like to receive prayer, there will be people here at the front waiting to pray for you. If you're watching online or, or if uh, just throughout the week at any time, you can always email us, care at capitalchurch.com. We'd love to connect with you. And, and we have a, a group of people. And one of the ways they... they contributing what God's doing in the world. One of the ways they find significance is by praying over your needs. Do you hear me? So please take us up on this. God's doing things. And and so let us pray for you. Okay, friends, here's what I want to pray for all of you. May you remember you are blessed to be a blessing. And may you bless the people around you by joining God in his work of bringing up there down here. Thanks for coming today. Grace and peace.